This is Movie Thoughts. My name is John Hastings, and this is my sloppily recorded, intermittently insightful podcast where I share my thoughts and opinions on movies. This podcast has a fan page on Facebook, at Movie Thoughts Podcast, and you can follow my reviews, which I post on my Letterboxd account, which is under the username Forager23. This is the 11th episode. This is my year in review. In the days gone by, I used to make uh, best lists every year. Some of my friends and I had a yearly tradition of gathering in February or March, and then we'd share our, our best lists, our top tens from the prior year. And that was, for me, the highlight of my movie-watching year in some respects. Getting to watch all those movies, but then getting a chance to talk about them um, and argue about them with my friends. And while we had that event which ran, we did from uh, 2000 up until 2014, I was actually really motivated to watch movies that I might not have otherwise watched because I wanted to be able to talk about them at the party. I, I would tend to try to watch movies that I thought I might not like, but that I knew my friends might uh, like so that we could talk about that. And also just to see the important movies, the ones that were by other critics considered uh, great, just so that, again, it would be fun to, to talk about, even if we were all kind of agreeing in our disagreement about a, a top critical choice. It was nice to have watched those movies to be able to have those arguments and conversations. And then since 2014, I've had uh, less and less time, um, less and less time, and less and less access to new to new releases. So I've I'm, I've had kids since then. I've been through medical school and then residency. It takes up a lot of time. I, I moved out of New York City, so I went from living uh, within walking distance to some of the best m movie theaters in the country, and now I live in Lebanon, New Hampshire, where we we do have a nice little art house cinema, but it's not the same. It's not the same thing as it was in New York. But but really, uh, the major factor in me not, you know, I don't keep up with new movies like the way I used to. I used to watch, you know, over a hundred, at least a hundred new movies a year. But the major factor in, in me not doing that anymore was the lack of that list party. I lost that social motivation that I had in terms of wanting to keep up with m these movies so that I could have these conversations. I just, you know, don't have the same motivation. Uh, I, I don't see the much interest in keeping up for the sake of keeping up. That's not important to me. I'm not a professional. Um, you know, having conversations on uh, Facebook is doesn't really feel the same way as having these conversations with friends in person. Um, you know, I'm I'm pretty happy with my amateur status, uh, and I, I started to feel that it was silly for me in this context to try to act like a professional um, if I wasn't getting paid. So the idea that I should see all these movies um, just because just stopped making sense to me. Um, I. I I didn't really care that I would be not in on the conversation because the conversation I wanted wasn't, you know, happening. And it led to me just, you know, not having much of a motivation to see something that did not, to me at least, look look promising. And as I was seeing fewer new movies, I started to question whether I should bother anymore with doing a best list for the year or a favorite list or whatever. If I was seeing a hundred or more new releases a year, I could kind of in my mind, and maybe this is all arbitrary, but I could in my mind say, you know, 
a top 10 is like the 10 for top 10 percent of my movie watching for the year and that gave meaning again maybe arbitrary meaning to what i was doing i felt that i was making a real choice by what i was excluding there was a meaningfulness in terms of what i was leaving out i was choosing you know the, i'm for these and i'm against those i you know i stopped worrying about that again i not seeing myself as a professional i don't see what i'm doing here or you know when i talk about movies on on facebook as a being a consumer guide if i'm sharing my thoughts about movies if i'm sharing my lists uh here or on letterboxd they're they're offered as recommendations from an amateur they're reflections of my taste and my interests they're not an attempt to survey the entire cinematic landscape and you know when i've looked at the top 10 lists I have come up with since 2014, since I stopped seeing new releases that regularly, I, I don't really think they look too different than they might have had I seen a dozen of other new releases, uh, mainly because I I'm, I'm, am preferentially seeing movies that I think I'm more likely to like to begin with. And I may be missing some surprises, but I have time to catch up with those later. Still, uh, at the time of this recording, I've seen only 13 new releases, uh, so 13 movies released officially in 2019. So I will talk about some favorites from my year, but uh, I, I don't really have, haven't seen enough to really get to that magic number of, of a top 10 um, for, what it's, for what it's worth. Before I get into my favorites, I like to talk uh, a little bit about just you know, the numbers, uh, movie watching year by the numbers. So at the time of this recording, I've seen uh, 132 movies this year. That includes new releases, old releases, rewatches, and then movies that were new to me. Last year, I actually saw 215, and this is a sort of a significant step down, but it's up from the general trend of the years before that. In 2016 and 2017, I saw 78 and then 89 movies respectively. And so last year looks more like the anomaly, and that was just because uh, my my parenthood demands were not as intense as they were uh, this year. My my work schedule both years has been pretty reasonable, but it was really the parenthood demands that made the difference there. Um, I guess this year I also spent a lot of time uh, rewatching um, uh, some TV shows. So I watched a the first season of Babylon 5 again. So that took up some time that I might have otherwise watched movies with. But having said that, of those 132 movies, 106 were new to me at least, and then 26 were rewatching movies I had seen before. I saw 38 of the movies on the Criterion channel, uh, and that didn't start, uh, I didn't subscribe to that until about a third of the way through the year. And in comparison, the in the year before, I'd watched 119 movies on Filmstruck. And, uh, you know, looking at those numbers, I also am tempted to say that I think one of the reasons I watched more movies overall last year is that I think Filmstruck was, you know, Filmstruck, uh, you know, I love the Criterion channel. I'm so glad it's there. I think it's the best streaming service available. And I don't think it's as good as Filmstruck, which had the Criterion channel plus a whole load of other interesting movies especially in terms of old uh, classical hollywood movies and and of odder uh more recent movies and then odder kind of genre movies filmstruck really um had had more to offer uh so it might just be you know part of that gap is just there's filmstruck was a little bit better 
Um, anyway, so I watched this year the 38 movies on the Criterion channel. That's the most of any any source of movies for me. I watched 19 movies off uh, library DVDs that I borrowed from my library, and that's down from 42 last year. Um, I watched 19 movies on Netflix, 11 on Amazon Prime, uh, through the the movies that are available just on Prime if you have a Prime subscription. I watched eight uh, Blu-rays from my collection, and that's up from only four last year, and I actually wanted to make an effort to watch more this year, so I'm glad I went up to eight, although I still would like to try to, uh, you know, watch more than eight. I have a pretty big collection, of, and I would like to get through, you know, more of my Blu-rays. I watched eight on the uh, HBO Amazon channel, uh, seven on the, uh, the sorry, the Amazon Stars channel, six on the Shutter service, which is uh, the horror movie streaming service, which I actually canceled my subscription to just because I found I wasn't watching it enough, not because I don't didn't like the movies. The movies were pretty good. It had a good uh, it had a pretty good um, catalog, but I just have so many other sources. It's hard to compete. I watched four movies at the local multiplex in Lebanon, New Hampshire. I watched two at the New York Film Festival, uh, two at the AMC in Lincoln Square in New York. One of those was uh, The Joker on IMAX. Two were from my collection of purchased, you know, purchased Amazon video on demand videos, which I, I don't like to do. I prefer to buy physical media. I prefer to buy Blu-rays, but sometimes um, the convenience can't be beat. I saw one at the local art house, the Nugget Theater, one on Disney Plus, uh, Million Dollar Duck, and then one on YouTube. I'll mention, too, that I also have the DC Universe streaming service. I didn't watch any movies or TV on it this year, although uh, their comic book selection is much better than it had been, so I am, feel I am getting my money's worth because of all the, the comic books that are available on it. I use it pretty regularly for that. So those were the those are my numbers for the year, and now we'll get into talking about some specific movies. And I'll, I'll start with, you know, if I was going to make a top 10 list, and I probably will be at some point, but right now um, I'm not, you know, if I was going to make a top 10 list, these would be some of the movies that would be on it, most likely. So first I gotta, I'll talk about two uh, Brad Pitt movies I really liked, both Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Ad Astra. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, always a bit of a tricky subject when I talk about a Tarantino movie, especially for me because I think think he is a polarizing figure I think there's this feeling that you need to take sides and you know I I don't it doesn't fit into my temperament but also especially my experience of his movies which I, I have a pretty mixed take on a lot of his movies and not really mixed in a way where I feel things average out so I'm like oh I've got a so-so lukewarm response but I find most of his movies almost all of his movies I think have brilliant things in them and I think almost all of his movies have very infuriating things in them even really close together almost at the same time and I, I think he is really brilliant I think that's uh, I think you know the the good things about Tarantino movies you know are their achievements that make place him at the forefront of his contemporaries in terms of his ambition as, and his achievement as a as an artist um, so that can be hard for me to talk with people who just see the infuriating parts or use those infuriating parts to beat up on the brilliant parts or you know just kind of shrug off the whole movie because they're infuriated by part of it um but having said that there are elements of his work that do infuriate me so i can have a hard time also discussing his movies with people who don't see any limitations to his work or his worldview 
so with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I I did have a mixed uh, response. I I part the parts I loved, I loved without reservations, though. I think maybe a, a third of it was it, it didn't really reach the level of infuriating I would say but I thought was at least a third of it might be a bit of a dud sequences where you know I could see where he's aiming at but didn't come off to me I I really do think you could cut out everything with Sharon Tate except uh the the voice over the intercom at the end of the movie and I I don't think the movie would be substantially harmed in any way it didn't end up really mattering to me though because i again you know even though there's a bunch of the movie i didn't think you know was great i think the stuff in the movie that works really does work and is pretty great um i thought everything with with uh, leonardo dicaprio and brad pitt was terrific and uh, i liked the way uh, it especially it handles dicaprio's character as this this sort of washed up actor it's not new in its general outlines in the movies but it's unique in its specifics and how it's dealt with here I like that the overall movie didn't feel like Tarantino was trying to play it safe. And I, I think it leads you to an interesting point with the ending where, you know, I, you, it kind of forces you to, to look at, like, what makes a happy ending and why should we feel happy for a, the fake ending of a fake story, you know. And it's interesting in terms of how it plays with, with history and what movies can do as, as a fantasy. And uh, I think leads to genuinely thought-provoking questions. Um, if if not answers, I, I you know don't think the movie was as surely as entertaining as uh, Shane Black's The Nights Nice Guys from a couple of years ago that I've talked about before here. I don't think it is as fully coherent as um, uh, S. Craig Zeller's movies, one of which I'll, I'll talk about a little later. But I, I think what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does is is unique enough and compelling enough to make certainly my overall experience with it is is comparable to what i had with those uh, other movies those which are which all of which you know become among my favorites of the last several years so the the other Brad Pitt movie i saw and really loved was Ad Astra this is directed by James Gray who i uh, mentioned here before so as with his prior movie which was the adaptation of the lost city of z what he's really presenting is this kind of inwardly directed voyage, a inwardly direct, you know, kind of in, a very interior movie. It's a voyage to inner space, the inner psychological space of these characters that is pretending to be an adventure movie. Um, Ad Astra is this, you know, it's this big science fiction movie. It it does seem to be made by someone whose entire understanding of the genre is coming from Solaris and 2001 you know, it uh, uses its action, action set pieces, which are, are pretty terrific, by the way. But it it doesn't uh, primarily use those set pieces to reveal character as, as you would in an adventure story or uh, an action movie, but rather to raise the stakes of uh, that inner journey, to, to, to raise the cost of what that uh, Brad Pitt's inner, inner kind of inner self-exploration is, is costing him. You know, this is a, a big movie in terms of its budget and its scope, but in some ways it's Gray's most stripped-down movie. Like a lot of the kind of classics of European modernism where the movie has been really reduced to the story and of, of the journey of a single consciousness, and the other characters really figure only as obstacles and foils. So 
in James Gray's earlier movies, he has this bold, very unironic, almost square allegory that is underlying the drama, but then around that, there's this very nuanced portrait of a given social or cultural milieu. And, and here we have the same type of bold, unironic allegory. It is, it's just as straightforward, it's just as square, but it's comparatively naked. There is We don't have that you know, uh, detailed depiction of a social milieu. We, we instead have this idiosyncratic take on, on the sci-fi idiom and a, these really uh, intense action sequences. And I, I think it's a, a beautiful movie and a moving, a, a moving movie. I think the, it has this kind of great non-twist, twist ending, which is very thematically compelling. And having said all that, I think it is somewhat peculiar that James Gray should make a movie that left many of his strengths unused. You know, he, I think he's one of the strengths of his earlier movies are those detailed milieus, those, that portrait of, of a social and cultural um, group of people and, you know, uh, not having that, um, I felt a little bit of a loss, a little bit strange that he'd, he'd go in this direction. And similarly with Brad Pitt's performance, this Brad Pitt is one of our most charismatic actors. That's what, you know, the, his charisma is what drives a lot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And for him to play such an inwardly directed character, I think it works well. I think it is a very good performance, but it does seems maybe peculiar to leave his strengths on the table uh, or leave his strengths un, you know unneeded in this movie. A- having said that, I think it's a, a terrific movie. So some other movies that I think would make my top 10 if I were making it, I'd have to... Uh, I would definitely have to put uh, Joker there. And I've already talked about that. You can go back to the first episode of this podcast uh, to see my thoughts on, hear my thoughts on Joker. And they haven't changed. I've read more about it, kind of more pros and cons, more uh, interpretations. And my my basic take has remained the same. I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty, pretty terrific. Um, check out my the first episode of the podcast if you haven't yet. And then there's two other movies that I really like that I actually want to talk about more on future podcasts, so I'll just mention them now. One is El Camino, which is the Breaking Bad movie, and I, I want to talk about that more in context of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and maybe a little bit on the differences between what we mean when we talk about, when we talk about the differences between TV and, and film or TV and cinema. And then I also want to talk about uh, another movie I really liked, uh, Richard Jewell, uh, the Clint Eastwood directed movie. Um, but I want, I have more things to say about that. So that's a topic for a future, a future podcast. Uh, after those, the other kind of rounding out some of my, my uh, top 10 or would be top 10, I really loved Glass, which is uh, M. Night. Shyamalan's uh, capper to his sort of uh, odd trilogy of Unbreakable, Split, and then Glass. And if you haven't seen it, my recommendation would be to just watch it without reading anything ahead of time. I don't know it's possible to do now. It's been out a while. Not so much because you'll hit the spoilers. Like What happens is not as important as the way it unfolds. How it happens is really surprising and unexpected. I, you know... 
I think it's one of those movies that if you, uh, I think it would, you know, challenge anyone's expectations of it. I think it did, you know, dashes your expectations, challenges them. I don't know. Um, you know, just keeping my comments general though, I think this is really as bold a movie he's made since the lady in the water. And it's his first movie since then that I, I feel, I feel the movies he made after the lady in the water, which got a real drubbing, uh, critically and it didn't, didn't make a lot of money. Uh, so I think he made a bunch of movies on the defensive where he was trying to, you know, not be himself, not be as, as weird as he is. And, you know, he had two, uh, the, the movies he made right before glass, the visit and then split. He, managed to keep his own voice but he was really working within this this bloomhouse style horror uh genre you know the ex, you know living up to the expectations of that genre and i i assumed glass would just continue in that path but instead he makes a completely original movie um you know it, it, one that does manage to do justice to both unbreakable and split and then it, it continues on the latter's pretty provocative theme of victimhood leading to power and uh, his, his kind of Pulp Fiction spin on this idea of post-traumatic resiliency. But it, even though it does justice to those movies, earlier movies, it really, it works, it feels very different from both of those movies. And then, you know, I really loved Glass. And then the last movie I want to talk about uh, of, of new releases was actually technically a 2018 release, but it came out, I think it was what became widely available in 2019. And that is... Uh, Dragged Across Concrete, directed by uh, Steve Craig Zahler. And the film critic Armin White called Zahler's sensibility post-Tarantino. So, you know, um, and I have an interpretation of what that means, but, you know, this is like this, for this movie, it's a cops and criminals movie, and central to it, as with Tarantino, is the way it kind of shifts between different levels of reality by, you know, I don't mean reality, different levels of reality like an in Inception where, like, you know, there's like a you know, where it's kind of like a fantasy, different like fantasy worlds that are parallel universes, but just reality in the way, uh, you know, as in Tarantino's movies where you have a sense of a tension between reality as it is defined in movies, so in terms of genre, and then expectations of how people behave, and then reality of how we see people behave in real life. So if you think in, in Tarantino's movies, he has those iconic crime stories, these iconic crime figures, but they engage in everyday conversations and kind of bullshitting banter, just like just like regular people. And that's sort of striking about, about those movies. You get this kind of uh, normal behavior within this genre context. And I think that's, and, you know, Tarantino didn't like invent that. It goes, you know, back to Howard Hawks uh, and, and before, but, but Tarantino really makes it central. And Zoller similarly has always this, you know, this tension in his movies between, oh, things are unfolding because that's the way things unfold in a cops and criminals movie movie. And then there's a tension with, oh, no, things are happening here because that's how things work in the, in the real world, maybe in quotation marks. But anyways, um, you know, Dragged Across Concrete is in some ways more straightforward than his two earlier features, uh, Bone Tomahawk, which is a, a, a horror western, and then Brawl in Cell Block 99, which is a a horror kind of prison movie. And, and they both start out in this, they, one, you know, Bone Tomahawk starts out as a western, and, and Brawl in Cell Block 99 starts out as a crime picture. And then 
about you know about halfway through each of them they take a real sharp turn towards something that's more horrific they turn you know they they the characters move into a very like a hellish type setting and and director cross concrete doesn't have that same um that same turn it stays in a very recognizable simulation of a big american city throughout but then again throughout in some ways it's it's the strangest of the three movies it's, it's creates this sort of uh there's a kind of quasi surrealism to its style that re- reminded me of the the third season of twin peaks where you know genre expectations genre rules are shifting and bending in a way that cause and effect sometimes are distorted in dreams zoller's style has a kind of amateurishness to it he doesn't film things just because you get you know that's how it's supposed to be filmed which can kind of make things seem a little off and you know his scenes seem to go on longer than we'd expect but he's i don't think he's thwarting expectations maliciously he's not toying with his audience he's just finding an experience that is valuable but different from what we usually get and uh i'd note here too that you know he's been described by some people as being a provocateur or being kind of pr- putting this politically provocative material into his movies but i actually think what's interesting is that he he actually doesn't push buttons um even though you know, other filmmakers would use similar contents only to push buttons, and the fact that he doesn't uh, push buttons is what is what makes him sort of notable. Anyways, I think it's a great crime movie, and uh, you know, it, it was sometimes I watch movies and I think of other films and other filmmakers, and it makes me think like, oh, I wish I was watching those other movies. You know, you know, kind of the movie does a bet. The movie is kind of doing a bad job because it's making me think of other movies. But while watching Dragged Across Concrete, I, w- I kept thinking of other filmmakers, but not in a bad way, not in that I thought it was derivative, um, but more that, um, and I got a similar sense when watching a Sa- the Safdie Brothers movies. You know, I, I get the sense I'm watching a movie made by someone who's an, uh, an omnivore as a filmmaker, you know, just ate up all these influences, but is rearranging them into uh, his own worldview. So, uh, you know, you get the references, but not in a, not, not in the sense of being hit overhead and by references or feeling it's derivative, but just feel this is like a really rich movie that seems to have a lot of touchstones uh, throughout film history. Um, so it's just this kind of more, more very rich experience. And and that, for me, was really my my movie of the year or, or my movie of, of 2018, if you want to be uh, technical. I want to talk a little bit more now. Those were the new releases. So I'll talk a little bit about some uh, some notable first watches of older movies. You know, I caught up with Maniac Cop for the first time. Um, you know, kind of the great a, a great uh, uh, horror movie, a slasher movie. It's put together by a, a dream team of low rent uh, New York City filmmakers. Uh, produced by James Glickenhaus, written by Larry Cohen, directed by William Lustig. Just very terrific grungy new york city crime movie horror movie i really enjoyed catching up with a pair of uh, richard quine thrillers on the criterion channel there's drive a crooked road um and then pushover drive a crooked road has a great mickey rooney performance it's a great film noir and then pushover has a, a great performance from fred mcmurray it it's contemporaneous with the movie rear window which you know, it has a lot of similarities to Rear Window in terms of its setup and plot, but it really played to me like James Elroy, Avant La Lettre. Um, it's about these, you know, kind of becoming really about a corrupt uh, police officer in L.A. I thought it was was pretty terrific. 
And then I finally saw a movie I've been meaning to see for years, and it's very widely available, so I'm not sure what took me so long, but that's uh, I Love Melvin. It's uh, directed by Don Weiss, and it's a musical with Donald O'Connor and Debbie Reynolds. And it's a, it's kind of this small-scale musical compared to the big MGM musicals, but um, it's just sort of this beautiful, very free-feeling, small-scale show, and it, it shows how much you can get at with just having like a great performer like Donald O'Connor at the center of your movie. And then uh, my other, you know, you know, best first watches of older movies. I want to spend a little bit more time talking about this one is uh, Phantasm, the cult classic horror movie. And as a, you know, as a digression to start with, you know, talk about horror movies and talk about horror genre. Um, a lot of it in a lot of contemporary horror, the, or the big name in contemporary horror, a, a big name has been Stephen King. And, and you know, um, and he's, you know, he's, creatively probably past his heyday but um really has a huge uh influence on me- most of or a lot of the horror uh, movies made in America for the last 40 years or so and he's so popular and he has such a big influence that that can obscure just how weird a lot of actual Stephen King stories are a lot of his novels are really odd you know, you if you read what he says about his own writing process, it makes it seem like he does his world building on the fly. He he seems to let his id just bleed into his work. So you get these very strange, fantastic elements in his novel that don't really make sense. You know, you don't have these rules about how supernatural things work in his stories, or if there are rules, they seem to change and contradict themselves as the story progresses. He he doesn't. He's not one of these guys who seems to let a high concept world building idea get in the way of an evocative effect or making a thematic or psychological point that he wants to make. And that aspect of his movies, the very weird, fantastical aspect, doesn't really usually translate well into the movies based on it. He writes these very long novels, and it's, you know, you've got these weird head scratching elements in the novels, and it's easiest just to leave them out. And a good example is uh, the it the, the recent movies based on it, which just you know took the weirdest stuff from those that novel and just pretended it didn't exist. It. Um, and in fact, I think it's often the the uh, pastiche, so not so much the work that's based directly on his movies, but the pastiche that do a better job of getting some of that weird uh, that weirdness into them. So Insidious, the Insidious movies, I think do a good job of. You know, they've got this kind of jumbled kind of fantasy pulling from a lot of different places. Um, and, and, you know, that's similar to how, how Stephen King works. I think Stranger Things, uh, which is has a similar central idea as Insidious, does a good job by, you know, trying to world build around all that weirdness. And it kind of smooths the corners and, and tries to come up with rules for it to make it less weird. I think that does a good job. And then also uh, Dr. Sleep, which came out this year uh, from, from, from King's novel. It's not a perfect movie, but um, it does it does keep a lot of the Kingian weirdness in it. So one of the few examples of a non-pastiche work, but a direct adaptation that is, you know, does justice to some of that weirdness. So you know, having said that, you know, Phantasm to me is compelling partly because it plays like a Stephen King story with everything cut out but the weirdness it jams together at least three fantastic horror movie concepts each of which you know you'd expect most authors to just place in three separate stories but here it's 
the blending together of those three stories, even at the cost of making sense, that is part of the appeal. And then the other part of the appeal is its terrific sense of design. This is the movie with that silver ball of death. Um, you've got the tall man, you've got this weird back room, and then what's beyond it, I don't want to spoil it. But those are all those things are evocative in their own right. And then I think more evocative because there's this choice not to explain them. They're just free-floating from any logical meaning that we might want to give them. Uh, and I hear that they flesh out some of the, the mythology, uh, which I put in, you know, quote-unquote mythology in the sequels, which I think would probably ruin it. So, you know, just watch the first one. Uh, or the, I'm only endorsing the first one. I'm not endorsing anything that comes after. And then, you know, by design or necessity, the appearance of the really weird stuff is brief, probably, you know, for budget reasons, but it actually adds to that overall feel of being shut off from an understanding of what's going on. That shutting off from a path to make sense of what we're watching, more so than the gore or the scares, is what makes this, for me, a great horror movie. I was really glad to catch up with it, and I think it is, uh, you know, one of these cult movies that definitely deserves its... Uh, deserves its cult reputation. And then I want to end with getting to what was for me maybe the most important rewatch of the year, and that's a, a rewatch of Woody Allen's movie Radio Days. I had just hazy memories of my prior experience with this movie. I tried to watch it. Um, my, my brother Mike and I tried to watch it together back in the early 1990s, and both of us got bored with it pretty quickly, and we we didn't finish that first viewing. And then I tried a couple years later, and I made it the whole way through, but it was not a movie that really stuck with me. Um, and for the last couple, you know, it's one that I've always wanted to give a, another chance to, or, I've, or I, you know, a couple years after that, I said, you know, maybe I should revisit it um, because. I would think to myself, you know, I, I love Purple Rose of Cairo and I love Zelig and I love Broadway Danny Rose and this seems to be in that vein, so maybe I should give it another chance. But then watching uh, over the last couple of years the new Woody Allen movies Cafe Society and Wonder Wheel, both of which I really love, I just started to think that, oh, you know, despite my recollections of Radio Days being pretty hazy, I thought that with, with Cafe Society and Wonder Wheel, Radio Days was really central to their DNA in some way and I, I finally decided I wanna wanted to go back and see it again all the way through and and really give it a chance. And I'll I can start out by saying I can see why it bored me when I was sixteen. It's a muted movie, it's very diffuse narratively, and its subject is uh the fragility of people and times that exist only as memories and that isn't necessarily a subject that would be as immediately gripping to a you know moody teenager as you know his more straightforward romantic ironies in his in the two rose movies this time though you know i had a, you know this time though that subject was you know hitting me pretty directly and i, I don't necessarily want to say it bowled me over because it's sort of too casual and conversational it's to to say that this is a masterpiece but I kind of want to anyway. I was completely caught up on it, um, just com completely, really engaged with it. And I started thinking of it as having a same kind of relationship to Purple Rose of Cairo that To Roam With Love has to Midnight in Paris, which is to say it takes the some of the ideas and, and themes and motifs that are played out in, you know, played out at full length in 
Purple Rose of Cairo or, or Midnight in Paris, but then explores them again in this episodic, even kaleidoscopic, overlapping fashion. And I found there's something, you know, really just exquisitely beautiful yet um, uh, quixotic about the way Alan creates a whole alternate universe of radio programs for us to mourn. So he's not, you know, we're not mourning real real radio programs, but we're we're mourning something that has has passed. Um, not just something that has passed, but something that has passed and, and actually never existed even because they're they're all, in, you know, this kind of history that's been invented for us just for this movie. Uh, and, and cafe society layers memory and fantasy in a in a similar way. It also contains what is probably, uh, for me, maybe the most emotionally powerful moments in any of his movies. There's the scene where the, the main family, they are... Uh, listening to reports from the scenes of these people trying to rescue a little girl who fell down the well and the everyone in the nation is listening. The whole country is united by the power of radio. And then the bad news is delivered and we see the, the camera pushes in on the father holding the, the young Joe, the, the kid, the central, the kid is kind of the central added and the father's holding him tightly. And it's, you know, and that's all, that's all that happens. And that makes me want to say this is, you know, this is just a very straightforwardly emotionally powerful moment. But, you know, when you think more about it, it isn't straightforward. It's very layered, like everything else in the movie. We have this accident that's been raised to the level of tragedy by by the power of radio to turn it into this communal story. We have this hope for a happy ending that's dashed with very little warning. It's, it comes it's sort of shocking. And then that shift in perspective we see in the family as the tragedy overshadows all the things they've been arguing about and momentarily puts them into a bigger perspective. It is a great scene in a great movie. And that scene and, and other things in that movie are why it was my, my rewatch of the year. So that was my year in review of movies. I hope you'll join me on this podcast next year. I have more things to discuss and ramble on about. Until then, take care.